1: and get 10% off your plan. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. It's the Adweek podcast where we talk
3: about advertising, marketing, uh, media, technology, dumpster fires, because in the end, just about everything is an ad for something else. I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with adweek.com. And uh, with me this week, we've got a great panel. I don't know how upbeat uh, everyone's going to be today. It is the day after the election. But I appreciate all of you getting up early and joining us today. Uh, Tim Nudd, our creative editor who joins us each week. Tim, thank you for joining us from Maine. Thanks for having me, David. Uh, Christina Monlos, a staff writer and producer on the podcast. Christina, always great to have you on. Thanks. The best we can muster today. And first time uh, podcast attendee, Michael Berge, our director of editorial partnerships, features editor, longtime uh, editor at Adweek. So great to finally have you uh, on board. It's a bright spot in my morning, Berge. Thank you for joining us. Glad, glad to be here. Uh, just bummed it's got to be on today, but really glad to be here. So as you can tell, today is the day after the election. Uh, Frequent podcast listeners will know that none of us are exactly big fans of Donald Trump. Uh, And so, no real surprise. uh, For those of you who are big supporters, uh, you can enjoy the shade and Freud of listening to us uh, feel all depressed and sad. But for the many of us, uh, many, many who share uh, some of our political leanings will probably feel the same way we do. Uh, We won't linger too much on the negative, though. We will try to focus on kind of the what's next. Uh, what this means for the media, for uh, you know the technology, for the digital industry, and so we'll we'll try to be as upbeat as we can. Uh- Today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about those election results and what's next. We're going to do our best to, to kind of stay forward-focused, and we're also going to look at the week's best ads, as we do every week, and we're going to unpack the Adweek 50, our annual list of 50 of the most powerful people in the industries we cover, and Mr. Birdie's going to help us navigate that list and talk about who made it and why. But first, let's talk about the news. So, Trump wins. Uh, President-elect Trump with 279 electoral votes to Clinton's 218. This was, uh, by all accounts, a surprise. Uh, It definitely defied all polling, all predictions, all punditry. Uh, Pretty much every guess uh, from everyone except his most staunch supporters. I would say it even shocked uh, Trump. And there was a lot of discussion last night about kind of the uh, best case scenarios that his team had really come up with, I don't think any of them were quite so robust. Uh, he managed to flip uh, some Obama state support states like Iowa, Florida, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wisconsin, uh, and those really spelled defeat uh, pretty easily for uh, Hillary Clinton. Uh, he got really huge traction with rural voters uh, that really hurt Clinton in the Midwest, uh, his uh, in the Rust Belt, and uh, you know a lot of these former industrial cities. Uh, it, small towns and small cities, mid-market cities, he did very well there. Uh, in the end, it, as always, it was a rural versus urban battle. Uh, many of you have probably seen those maps from the Obama elections where, you know, if you look at it county by county, it's a very, very, very red map, even when Democrats win. But this time, she just didn't have the support she needed in the in the middle sized cities, in some of the Midwestern cities. Uh, and it, it just wasn't enough. So that said, um, I don't know, uh, Christina, what was your your evening like uh, watching all this come in?
4: Uh, extremely depressing, surprising, uh, hating five thirty eight. <laughs> um, I I, um, I guess the only thing that I found that was interesting um, and not depressing was uh, I saw um, Jason Stein. He runs laundry service. He tweeted that um, you know Trump winning sort of proves that you know you don't like you don't need a tv ad to win it like proves that social media and the kind of branding that trump has done on his own um works and you know i, I guess for marketers that is something that something of a lesson um but no i mean <laughs> it was uh not great How's yours
3: well, mine, personally, I, you know, I live in Alabama. It was always going to be a very red state. And so I've kind of gotten used to uh, being a bit of an exception uh, in the political climate of where I live. Uh, Tim, you were also in a, Maine ended up being quite a a, a battleground, interestingly. Uh, how, did, how did Maine end up uh, coming down?
0: Uh, well, I believe uh, Hillary won the southern part of Maine, as the Democrats usually do, the big... Uh, City centers like Portland are are down here. Uh, Last count, I I think that uh, Trump uh, took the uh, one electoral vote because Maine can actually split uh, its electoral votes. It has four. I think the first congressional district uh, in the south counts for three. And then um, upstate Maine, which is the more rural area, it looks like uh, Trump uh, may have pulled that out. but, yeah, I mean, I think a big story uh, from our perspective as Adweek is really um, that, the, that the TV advertising, as Christina said, it didn't really matter that much. We, we've actually spoken a lot uh, on this podcast about um, election advertising. And, you know, Hillary vastly outspent Trump, uh, made much more polished ads, on t- not only on television, but also uh, in digital. Uh, use, she used some of the most creative resources in Madison Avenue. Uh, agency resources, and didn't really add up to a whole lot. Clearly didn't persuade enough people. Um, you know, and we, we've mentioned this before, you know, ads, ads matter less in presidential politics than they do in some local and state races. Uh, people are pretty plugged in to the candidates already, generally speaking, in the presidential race, so they don't need ads to tell them really who these people are and what they stand for. Uh, but, you know, so then you have to, you know, why didn't the ads work? I think you have to question maybe the strategy of, of going negative against Trump. I mean, was that a waste of time and money if it was, you know, if it was never going to persuade those in the middle to cast a vote for Clinton? Uh, would something more positive have worked? Um, you know, all the, all the famous spots we can point to and, and have pointed to, I think, over the last few weeks and months uh, from, from Hillary have been negative ones. You know, I think about the role models ad that Droga 5 made, um, you know, just basically showing kids watching television and uh, listening to Trump's words. And, you know, I think the Clinton campaign felt like that was enough to to, to, to cast Trump as as a loser, you know, and maybe the campaign and, and the agencies got caught up in that narrative that, that of course, Trump can't win. And, and if we just show why we think he can't win, that that's enough. Um, I think clearly that wasn't enough.
3: I guess the one area I might disagree a bit in, in terms of the importance of TV ads, I think in the next few days we will probably hear more detail about this, but it seems like Trump was pretty effective with his advertising in Michigan and Florida. I think he ran a really good ground game in Florida, and I remember watching him just kind of, you know, trump across the state and, and really have uh, these you know, this massive visibility there. And the whole time I kept thinking, man, I hope Clinton's got this behind the scenes ground game that I'm just not seeing or not really hearing about, because I it, I knew it was all going to come down to Florida. And uh, and sure enough, you know, in the end, it wasn't a huge margin. I, I think you're going to see a lot of people, as we did after Bush Gore saying, you know, look how many hundreds of thousands of third party votes could have swung the election one way or the other. I personally think that's kind of wasted energy uh, just because you could say the same thing about, you, you know, a any other aspect of it, if, if certain minority communities had turned out in more force. or You know what I mean? You could spend your life sure, chasing after these sure. alternate scenarios. I mean, um, you
0: know, Trump openly uh, questioned the value of ad buys. You know, he, uh, Hillary was advertising to the general, you know, in the general election in, in June. Uh, Trump didn't release his first ad until almost the end of August. And, you know, we've also talked a lot on this podcast about how clever some of the anti-Trump stuff has been. Um, you know, cleverness doesn't translate into votes, though. And you know, an even more you know brutal point of view on that might be that um, maybe cleverness is arrogance, and that and that you know, the the funny tweet and the funny Facebook post and you know, extends it extends to the voters too. And I think um, it's sort of become clear that that for a lot of people who voted for, for, for Trump, they you know they weren't interested in being entertained; they were interested in expre- expressing their fear and 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 trying to overcome that fear. So I think it was a pretty big maybe a pretty big blind spot on the part of the, the Hillary people.
2: Well, I, if if I may weigh in on that, yeah, I would say that uh you know, um arrogance it, it played a big role here. I, I I as much as I don't want to agree with pretty much anything that Donald Trump says, there there is some point made here that uh the mainstream media spent a lot of time quote unquote, diluting itself into believing that Hillary could win. And I think a lot of pollsters need to kind of be like, you know, taken out in the backyard and told a lesson or two about uh, believing or or finding what they want to believe in numbers. Uh, Because clearly, a lot of the country felt otherwise. And as depressed as I am, what I'm trying to do is learn from this. And I think part of it is that, uh, you know, uh, Fox is now the new mainstream media. Uh, Fox News, that, that being, and uh, I, th- I think the rest of the quote-unquote liberal media that, that Fox loves to paint in a negative light and that Trump loves to do as well do need to do a little bit of soul searching, um, and it would be nice to see fewer talking heads on TV declaring how it's going to be because last night turned out to be different.
4: It's also like <laughs> when we're talking about the media, we have to differentiate between broadcast and print media because... You know the Washington Post, the New York Times. A ton of those reporters did their jobs, and they did them really well. And you know, for the broadcast media, I mean, having Cory Lindaski on, you know, there were there were so many things where it's like they they cross a line to a degree for for you know views <laughs> for yeah, viewers I mean, and. I, well, yeah, I, Donald I,
2: Trump was ratings crack. I mean, the, you know, the, the, the broadcast media couldn't let go of that. There's no doubt about that. And, and I, I was as horrified as anybody else about Corey being uh, brought onto CNN. But, uh, you know, at the same time, you know, every anti-Trump story that The Washington Post ran after Trump kind of, you know, kicked them out of uh, any of his press conferences was just another log for him to throw onto the fire of hatred at the so-called mainstream media that's, I'm not saying that it's right. I'm saying that's what happened. And last night's election really shows that in very stark contrast. And perhaps we all need to learn a lesson from that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it is, uh, to some degree, unfair to paint all media that that they were oblivious to all this. Um, There has been a lot, you know, there was a lot of fact checking of Trump's lies. And there was a lot of investigative journalism into his failures, particularly among print journalists. But I do think there was this bubble that just, Everybody, you know, in the mainstream media, probably just was seemed to be living in. And you know, on Monday, a, a journalist called me from a well-known newspaper, and you know, we he was working on a story for today, presuming Trump's uh, defeat and and how much damage it was going to do to the Trump brand. And we spoke for you know half an hour on the phone about this. And it's that kind of uh, you know just bubble that I think it was hard to get out of, and the polls reinforced that bubble and you know the the trump from the very beginning in the in the in the republican primaries was considered sort of a clown and a guy who could never win and then he did win and then well in general he's a clown and he could never win and here we are
4: i mean it's also a problem with reporting being centralized in like three cities on the coasts you know when when newspapers in smaller cities like Minneapolis or um, you know St. Louis or something like that when they're when they don't have resources and people aren't reading them anymore um, you know it's it's harder it's harder to be able to you know get out of that bubble and well, see out of that and bubble. And he also
0: had uh, however many hundreds of endorsements by newspapers for Hillary. I think did Trump get one from a Las Vegas paper? I think only one significant newspaper aside from the KKK newsletter uh, endorsed him. So yeah,
4: the fact that David Duke is happy today is the, bizarre. the worst.
2: Disillusioning to say the least.
3: Let's yeah. talk about let's talk about polling. Polling was obviously a big point of discussion, uh, most visibly with 538 Nate Silver's kind of polling aggregation map which had gotten a lot of fame with the Obama election for kind of calling it uh, very accurately. This time clearly not accurate. Uh, he he had, uh, I think Hillary pegged at a 73% chance of winning going into the election night, um, as did a lot. It's not just Nate Silver. Um, but I have a feeling you're going to see a lot of uh, anger directed at Nate Silver. Is that merited? Uh, I mean, did polling fail us or have we just become overly convinced in something that relies so much on outdated technology like getting people to answer a phone or online polling which can be easily uh, you know if not manipulated can can be tough to to work around Uh, what do you guys think?
4: Well Jake Tapper last night was saying you know that he he was sort of thinking that it didn't really work when they went to Philly, and he talked to someone there who was saying, like, they had a lot of leaners, meaning that, like, people would lean in and quietly say, you know, I'm thinking about going for Trump. It's it's something where people quietly were voting with their wallet over decency. I mean, I don't know. You, you're not going to admit that to a pollster, you're not going to say that you're not going to say, I care more about what, you know, the the width of my wallet than I care about other people.
2: Well, I think one thing that Trump really changed with this election is the outrageousness of the things he said and the way he ran his campaign that to, to Christina's point, uh, people were probably less willing to share exactly how their vote was going to go. And that does call into question the validity of a lot of polling, as we now know. I mean, personally, I've always, you know, put more faith in uh, Paul, the World Cup uh, picking uh, octopus that died a year or two ago, who always picked the right World Cup winning team uh, than most polling. Um, and I don't know, I, I feel a little bit validated in that skepticism this morning, as, as much of a pyrrhic victory that is.
3: So what's next for the Democrats? I mean, they don't have a clear successor uh, lined up. I think Cory Booker is probably their best chance at this point uh, in terms of an established person. Uh, Berge, what do you think is next for the Democrats?
2: Well, I think it's too early to tell what, you know, who's going to emerge as the next leader. What I think the Democrats need to do is some serious house cleaning in their operations. Um, you know, if there's one thing that WikiLeaks showed is that there is a lot of rot inside that institution um, as a mechanism for getting Democrats elected, I would like to see some house cleaning. Um, you know, going back to Christina's point of. Uh, of decency i i i you know i don't think any amount of decency would have won against Trump, but I would like to see uh less corruption and I think that would be job number one is clean house in the the mechanisms of the democratic machine well let's move on to
3: marijuana uh so recreational marijuana had a really good night ironically maybe um it uh, you know point, it would david uh it's Passed in California, Massachusetts, and Nevada. Uh, It failed in Arizona, and last I heard was still being counted in Maine. Uh, So that joins states where it's already legal, like Alaska, Colorado, Oregon, and Washington, plus Washington, D.C., meaning that more than 20 percent of Americans now live in areas where recreational pot is legal. Uh, And there were also medical marijuana bills on the ballot last night in Arkansas, Florida, Montana, North Dakota. So this is something you're seeing well beyond the coasts, well beyond kind of these Democrat holdouts, and, uh, and seems to be doing incredibly well with Uh, Voters in every age bracket except boomers and and except over sixty-five, really, Um, and uh, and Republicans still generally favor, you know, are are opposed to, especially recreational marijuana. Uh, But I think we're definitely seeing a generational shift. if anything, this was kind of one of the more fascinating stories last night, probably getting a bit uh, clouded by the bigger story of who got elected. But, Christina, what do you think is going to happen in the next few years in terms of kind of America's attitude and, and legal uh, approach to marijuana?
4: I, I think we'll get a lot of uh, more stoner brands. I think people will try and, you know, come up with products and branding and we'll see more more weed advertising, uh, or at least discussions of what weed advertising should be, how it should be, what it will be, who will work on it. We might even see pot agencies, um, more weed reporting. I mean, I I think there's, there's definitely going to be a lot of discussion about weed, and then people will probably want to be stoned.
3: Well, and you mentioned stoner brands. I honestly kind of predict the opposite. I, I think we're going to see the real kind of mainstreamification of marijuana where they try to really do away with these decades of, of cultural baggage around it and really try to, to just position it uh, branding-wise in the same way uh, that, we, uh, that we position craft beer or, or something like that. Bergy, what you, what's your take on kind of where the marijuana branding is headed?
2: so so pot might be like this generation's blue nun wine or something like that that's that's an interesting idea um, I you know look I, I, I first of all I think it's interesting that uh, pot is clearly nonpartisan as we saw from uh, the results last night um, I do think it's going to uh, literally inject some revenue into government coffers once it's get it gets taxed maybe that's not a bad thing Um and I, I I look forward to the way the marketing and advertising industry embraces this as it rolls out nationwide. I think there's still too many obstacles in the way for that to happen anytime soon because I think it kind of needs to become something that is uh, national in nature. But uh, I, you know this 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 could be a boom for everybody involved in the process, and that's not a bad thing.
3: All right, well that's that's the news. It's a big week already. Um, Let's talk slightly more upbeat, uh, hopefully, uh, if Tim didn't bring some really dour stuff this week. We've got our weekly segment on ads worth watching. This is when Tim not our creative editor, uh, gathers up the ads that are actually worth your time to sit
0: down and watch. Tim, what do you have for us this week? David, this week, uh, I do have a bit of a, it's a it has a somewhat uh, sad angle to it, but it's a very interesting execution that Ikea did uh, out in uh, Norway in a store in Oslo, the flagship Ikea store in Norway. And what they did was, you know, everyone's familiar with uh, the, the Ikea store. It's almost, it's. I would say it's one of the very few really truly iconic in-store experiences, uh, almost as, as iconic as Apple, where everyone's had that experience of going to an Ikea and walking from room to room. They, they set up these rooms so you can see the furniture kind of as you, as you might use it if you, if you bought everything from Ikea. And what they did uh, as, a, as a fundraiser for the Red Cross was they, they took a, uh, one of these rooms and they basically created um, uh, what looks like a damaged home in Syria. So it's this, it's this PSA fundraiser idea and so you're walking through the store and suddenly you become you come upon this sort of cinder block room with with uh, damaged walls, uh, very threadbare furnishings and there's a lot of uh, text uh, on the walls encouraging you to donate to the Red Cross and try to help the situation in syria uh it, it it did really well it raised a few a few million euros for the for the Red Cross and it was just one of those it was one of those uh, installations that really turns really turns your head when something's so familiar to you. If you're walking through an IKEA, um, I think you're really open to experiencing that familiarity when it's turned on its head or, or hacked in some way. And the agency in Oslo called POL um, just did a fantastic job of of presenting this very sobering installation. And you know, it's also obviously this the war in Syria has been going on for. The better part of five years, uh, with no end in sight. Um, so this is, it was great. You know, it's great to see, uh, you know, a creative take on, on addressing the problem. So kudos to the agency, and I thought uh, IKEA was pretty brave to get behind this, also.
3: I that number you mentioned a few million. I I mean I believe they raised twenty two million euros. Uh, that's a that's a staggering number. It is. I
0: didn't delve that deeply into uh, exactly whether that was just from the visitors. I think that it was it was live from October seventeenth to the thirty first, and I think in those two weeks it got about eighty thousand visitors. Uh, but I believe there was a larger campaign around this that that went online also, so it wasn't just from from the installation, um, but. You know, I mean, it was amazing And when, when you think about it. and I, You know, the agency, I spoke to the agency, uh, the guys at POL about this. And, you know, they had a lot of they had a lot of video footage because they went to Syria and they went to an apartment, a home of this family. And they met this specific family that, that the house is modeled on. And they had all this video footage of that. Um, but, you know, when you when you watch video footage, no matter how emotional it is, you don't get close to the actual experience of visiting the war zone. And that's really what this installation does. It kind of puts you, uh, you know, it puts you in that that environment. And not just in that environment, but that environment is right next to uh, all these other Scandinavian homes that are scattered, you know, rooms that are made up and scattered throughout IKEA. So, you know, you go from, it, it was such a clever way of going from the familiarity and comforts of home directly into what really felt like um, a, 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 da- you know, a damaged house uh, in Syria. And I think it probably you know, did more than any TV spot could ever do to, to maybe spur donations.
3: And we've talked a lot about how I think even on this podcast about how kind of the modern formula for viral success isn't so much these convoluted videos anymore. It's really about finding a, a, a really clever and insightful way to use one specific location. And and, and then that becomes a viral success uh, because of the way that that well-executed single idea, single installation really becomes a, a point of massive online discussion. I thought this was maybe the one of the most perfect examples of that I've seen.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, m- more people have never- now seen our story about this than have actually visited it and that's just our story and it's been picked up elsewhere too so yeah i mean as you say you know a really a really fascinating uh, out-of-home execution can do so much for a cause or for a brand and this is a great example of that
3: well what else uh, did you find that was worth watching this week tim
0: Well, on a much lighter note, uh, we have this skincare spot uh, for a brand called Nerd Skincare. It's a San Francisco startup, and it was founded by actually a biomedical engineer named Evelyn Chen. And uh, it's a five-minute video. I'm sure our listeners, many of you guys have seen uh, the Harmon Brothers, which are those, they make these crazy... Uh, long-form viral videos. Uh, you have probably saw the Squatty Potty ad with the the pooping unicorn. So that's a very... The Harmon Brothers didn't make this, uh, the, the nerd skincare one. Uh, a company called Chamber Media did out in L.A., but it's done in a very similar style, and it's basically a hodgepodge of uh, craziness. There's an actress in it uh, named Laura Clary who, is, who delivers a, a very long and amusing monologue uh, all about, you know, pimple cream and and it takes a testimonial format and kind (laughs) of turns on its head it's it's an insane five minutes and it's not only her giving her monologue uh in sort of you know the old spice slash dollar shave club style but it's also uh the evelyn chen the the founder um shows up and does a weird um I guess you would call it an experiment. It's like a nine-day uh, thing where she puts bacteria on her face and develops pimples, and then over the course of nine days, sort of heals herself, and that's all sort of squashed into this larger comic framework. And it's sort of hard to describe because there's so much going on in it, um, but it's a very, very funny video, and in the in the style of the Harmon Brothers, who you know, not along with Squatty Potty, they did a really, really great uh, long-form video for chat books recently and it's just, it's becoming its own little cottage industry these sort of 5 minute videos that are hugely entertaining have s- something to do with the product but you know it's not it's the focus is really to entertain and and this one does a fantastic job of it so i would i would urge anyone who needs a little t- a little laugh today to go, to go check that out it's, again it's called nerd uh skincare and it's it's on ad on ad freak today
3: Let's uh, let's listen to some of that because I really I I really thought uh, like you mentioned this this model is increasingly popular uh, of kind of the long form funny ad but I really thought the delivery was fantastic so let's listen to some of that.
4: You tried everything yogurt, honey, guacamole mixtures, toothpaste, which oddly enough it's for your teeth, salicylic acid, benzoyl peroxide, laser beams, and your own tears. You even tried affirmations. I have clear skin. I have clear skin. I have clearly gone insane, and I'm going to cry now and eat a lot of ice cream.
3: Yeah, so a good one and a nice little palate cleanser uh, today. I never thought I'd be looking to acne ads uh, to cheer me up. <laughs>
0: Whatever <sighs> Here works. Here we are. Whatever works. Uh, and uh, and what else do you have for us this week? So finally, this is going to probably seem like ancient history, but um, this this happened after our last week's podcast recording, which was the... the the Chicago Cubs World Series victory and the brands that sort of came out of the woodwork after that to congratulate the Cubs with with ads uh, and you know I was watching the game, Game Seven, crazy game last Wednesday night, and I think it ended at twelve forty seven or something, and then uh, Fox stayed with with the game through the through a lot of the post game for another 20, 25 minutes without cutting to commercial, and then finally they cut to commercial and uh, there's a lovely uh, Nike commercial that comes on with a kid. By himself at a at a roadside ballpark, and he's got a, he's got Cubs gear on, and he's, you know, he, he's dreaming of being a pro, and he's hitting the ball around, and it was just one of these really nice, wonderful media buys. Obviously, the the first slot after any major sporting victory uh, is such a great time to to reference that. You know, you think about going back to the Beijing Olympics when Michael Phelps. Uh, won his eighth gold medal and and the very first ad after that was was Visa congratulating him on eight gold medals you know it's just this live opportunity to to really be in the moment for for an advertiser and I wasn't surprised it was Nike and so there's that one and then shortly after the Nike ad aired uh, Budweiser did its own pretty fun stunt which was that they they dug up a classic 1980s commercial uh, with Harry Carey, the legendary Cubs announcer, uh, people, I, I, I remembered this ad from the (laughs) eighties, believe it or not. I mean, I, I grew up in Chicago, so I saw a lot of the, I watched a lot of Cubs games and I I saw a lot of these ads, but it's Harry in the stands talking about how great the Cub fans are. And you hear the crack of the bat and he's got a net and you think he's going to catch a ball and he catches a, uh, a can of Budweiser. And it's just one of those, you know, cheesy, but like really charming, uh, this, but this buds for you commercials. So basically Budweiser, uh, dug up this, this old ad and, uh, ran it right after the Nike one and, and added a tag on the end, you know, congratulations to the Cubs for their long awaited victory. So both of those were, were pretty fantastic. And then there was a third one that, that we also wrote about from ESPN. Um, this is sports center. Of course, the 20 something year old, uh, almost 30 year old, I think campaign, Um, from espn that widening kennedy new york does and they did a special sports center ad congratulating the cubs too where one of the sports center hosts goes up to a whiteboard and um well it's it's sort of hard to explain it's worth it's worth seeking out um espn cubs ad if you guys haven't seen it but it it involves um kind of erasing the the 108 year it, it says years since Cubs victory and the guy erases the 108 and puts in a, a 0 and then and then there's a kicker at the end which is I thought was pretty pretty well done so it may seem like a lifetime ago but congrats to the Cubs and congrats to the the marketers who came out to congratulate them
3: Well, thank you, as always, Tim, for gathering up the best ads of the week. Uh, We sure appreciate it, especially this week. Nice to have interesting stuff to discuss that's not political. Uh, And on that note, we've got another big topic that uh, is outside of politics. For those who've suffered through some of these conversations so far, don't worry. It's all marketing and such from here on out. Let's move on to our big discussion topic of the week. This week, we're talking about the Ad Week 50. This is an annual list of some of the most powerful folks in technology, uh, media, uh, a lot of the industries we cover, marketing. And really excited to have Michael Berge here. Uh, As I mentioned, this is uh, one of his babies that he puts together every year. Michael, tell us about, uh, well, let's start with what is the Ad Week 50?
2: Well, the Ad Week 50 really tries to um, celebrate those kind of key executives that are not the CEO, that support the CEO, who are delivering results that make their CEO look good. Um, we we intentionally try to choose people who are not at the very top of the company because we, we we've tried over the years to highlight individuals who are kind of a little bit unheralded or maybe work in, in, in the, uh, the background of a business, but are key and instrumental to making that business succeed. That's always been the, uh, the idea of it. We wanted to make this a list that is not like all the other lists where it's the person at the top. So that's the thinking behind it.
3: Now, it, it is a ranked list. Is it? Uh, tell us about how the team ranks these, uh, who ranks them, and, and kind of what, is it an art or a science or both?
2: Uh it's a little bit of both. Um we put up a dartboard, we put everybody's name on it, um blindfold ourselves, and then we throw dart no, just kidding. We have an Um, octopus. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. It's Paul the octopus, it's his offspring. Um uh, no, uh, we, we, we basically get the editors together um, once we've got, you know, a, a sizable list of people that have been uh, sent to us from, you know, enterprising people in the industry, but also from the collective wisdom of our reporters. Uh, once we've got that, then we just try to rank people. Um, and this is where it's kind of a little bit of a gut check, as well as looking at the numbers, the the people who've kind of really moved the needle most significantly for their company, and that kind of explains why we have someone like Imran Khan, who's the chief strategy officer of Snapchat, as our number one. You know, you, you look at Snapchat's um, ad revenue; it was you know under four hundred million, but you know, and and you know, number five or six is uh, Sridhar Ramaswamy, who oversees something like sixty billion in in ad revenue. But Imran basically facilitated. Uh, he devised the strategy that has allowed Snapchat to go to the market and now basically clean up in advertising because every marketer wants to be on Snapchat that is trying to reach millennials that are deserting so-called traditional media. For, for us, that was just a no-brainer to put him at number one, even though what he has delivered is not commensurate in size to some of the other uh, uh, people on, on the Adweek 50. So that's, that's what we try to do.
3: So, just a little bit of qu- uh, recent historical perspective. Last year's winner was the NFL's uh, Don Hudson. Uh, the year before that, I believe, it was Facebook's Carolyn Everson. Uh, so, tell us a bit more about why Imran Khan kind of got the the top the top billing this year.
2: Well, uh, again, Imran is the executive within Snapchat that basically devised uh, the the mechanism and means by which Snapchat can go to market um, with offerings that it seems every marketer wants to uh, have a piece of. Um, Snapchat has the very good fortune of kind of being one of the hottest social media properties out there, especially with kind of the younger set. I mean, we always talk about millennials, but to me, this is kind of more about reaching Gen Z. Um, If Snapchat had gone to market with a strategy that just kind of like, peppered itself with advertising, um, it probably wouldn't be as successful or it might burn itself out quicker. Imran doesn't necessarily have the Rolodex of contacts at all the brand marketers who are going to make his phone ring off the hook. That's why they brought in Jeff Lucas, who is not on this list. Jeff Lucas is the former head of ad sales at, uh, at Viacom's MTV networks. He's got the Rolodex, but it was Imran's thinking that set up the mechanisms by which Snapchat can now clean up. That's the thinking behind him. Who are some other? Who are some new names on this list this year? You know, we actually had I think it was like thirty six n- new names uh, this year. Um, I'm, Imran is a first timer, although we had uh, another executive from Snapchat far lower on the list last year. Um, Eric Schreier and Nick Grad, who are co-presidents of original programming at FX, clearly FX has a lot of good things going on. We have a lot of uh, first-time CMOs on this list from uh, uh, Kristen Lemkow, the CMO of JP Morgan Chase, uh, Lou Pascalis, who is at the other giant bank, uh, Bank of America. Um, we've got uh, uh, Lucas Hershkowitzi, who is uh, VP of Consumer Connections at ABN Bev. Um, Greg Hoffman, CMO of Nike, we, we tried to find marketers that have really taken some risks and done some innovative things and, again, moved the sales needle for their company um, as the executives kind of add to this list.
3: Was there any sort of trends that you saw this year in terms of what kind of accomplishments people had over the last year that really made their names jump out or what kind of transitions they had made in their careers that made them kind of position them well, uh, either within their companies or within new companies?
2: Well, I think, you know, one of the reasons why we have so many CMOs on here is because, um, and please correct me, you guys, if you disagree, because you are our advertising experts, but I think we've seen some marketers take uh, some risks that we wouldn't have seen a couple of years ago, and we really tried to, um, you know, honor that uh, through, through putting more marketers on this list. And we tried to identify those who did take more risks. Um, other trends, you know, it's kind of a negative trend, but one thing you'll see fewer of on this list this year are, uh, agency executives. Um, and I I, I may be overstating it, but, you know, agencies are at risk of being, um, less instrumental in the kind of communications process. And I think this list kind of reflects that a little bit. So that's that's kind of a negative trend. I, I hate to point that out, but it is true.
4: It's true. Like a lot of the marketers that we ended up honoring, um, they were building like in-house teams or, you know, uh, they all got better at learning uh, digital strategies and pushing those first, or, um, you know, it wasn't about, like, one big creative ad. It was about a strategy that could, you know, uh, go across the platforms and have, like, a bunch of different, um, you know, like a Facebook one, a YouTube one. Like, I mean, you know, highlighting a digital strategy and um, and that shift is, is kind of where we that out
2: yeah those are really great points that's 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 very true um so that's that's kind of the thinking behind there
3: christina were there any uh names especially for a lot lots and lots of women on this list i've always really appreciated the uh the diversity and balance that uh, the editors and reporters bring to this list uh anyone any names that jumped out at you as people that you've really uh enjoyed kind of watching their career over the last year or two
4: Uh, I mean, what's been going on with... I wrote about Under Armour, so that's what jumps out to me, is uh, Kip Falks, uh, because Under Armour's Armour's advertising, what they've done, you know, to come out and sort of be able to get all of these athletes and to figure out how to um, market at the level that nike is to have steph curry when you have steph curry i mean all of those things are are pretty interesting um espn actually had a breakdown a while ago of how nike really screwed the pooch on their steph curry um thing i mean uh i'm not sure if there there was really anyone that surprised me um I mean, having Snapchat as number one, I think, made a lot of sense. If you were watching marketing this year, a lot of the fun and a lot of what's been interesting in terms of like the advertising that we've been covering, you know, has been sort of seeing this transition of Snapchat moving from this platform that like 13 year olds would send each other like weird snaps and then you'd be like, what? What's, what's happening with the teens to sort of um, oh here's a whole different way to use a platform you know using filters all of these brands using filters I mean that's that's interesting and, and seeing that take place has been kind of fun and you know we're also we got we got to have like a really smiley cover usually usually we have like some gray tones for these things and he was he was happy
0: I'm gonna be the guy to say that um the agency folks are pretty essential to the marketing process too. And, uh, even though we only have, I believe four of them on this list, uh, it's, it's good to see them on there. Eric Springer, the the CCO over at Inotion was an interesting, you know, Inotion is such an interesting company. Uh, they, they handle Hyundai. Of course they're Korean, they're a Korean agency, actually Inotion worldwide. And Inotion USA has been doing really interesting things over the past few years. We had a a pair of young creatives for, uh, from a notion on our creative 100 this year who, uh, they had the number one spot on the USA today ad meter during the Super Bowl, the, the, the Hyundai first date ad with Kevin Hart. And, you know, they, they are kind of a one, uh, one client agency here in the U S although they've been branching out and winning some other business too. So it was nice to see Eric Springer on the list. That's an agency that, that I think has big things ahead of it, uh, relatively unknown until the last few years. Um, but that was an interesting choice. And then we talk about Under Armour, marketers like that. A lot, of, a lot of the CMOs on this list, I think, have very, very strong agency partners behind them and are learning uh, how, to, how to evolve that relationship uh, into a, a more symbiotic one where it's less of a vendor situation. And the agencies are certainly trying to do that. And uh, you know, the marketing successes of the, of the brands on this list, I think, uh, you can chalk a lot of that up to the agency involvement too.
2: I think that's a really good point to make, Tim. Thank you for pointing that out. Because I don't mean to take away from the value that agencies bring to the to the process. And I think agencies are instrumental in helping tell stories, which is, you know, kind of really key to marketing these days. And and I think maybe we did give a lot of love to the marketers for that. But you're right, behind every good marketer is almost always a pretty smart agency. So point well taken.
3: Well it's always an interesting list uh, to put together Michael congratulations to you and, and the team uh, on, on getting together the ad week 50 I encourage everybody if you have not already to check it out you can just look for ad week 50 2016 uh, and you should be able to find it pretty easily uh, and thanks so much for joining us Michael it's it's great to have you on and we'll definitely have you on again soon
2: a real pleasure thanks David thanks everybody.
3: To everyone listening, uh, don't forget, you can send us an email anytime. We love getting your emails. We're at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. Uh, we've got some fun stuff coming up, actually, Michael, while I got you here.
2: Uh, what are some fun things coming up in the print edition uh, in the next few weeks? Uh, well, we've got our big hot list issue coming up, which, uh, again, tries to kind of identify the things that are hot across television, print, and uh, digital media. Um, Then, of course, uh, I know you you and Tim are hard at work on uh, Agency of the Year. That's coming up in early December. And Tim, of course, gives us a a, a terrific review of the ads of the year in the following issue. Those are kind of the hot things coming up. Although, uh, look for a really good feature this coming Monday by Patrick Coffey on uh, the new media agency, Hearts and Science, which came out of nowhere to win the two largest marketers uh, in the world.
3: That is, I, I've really been looking forward to that. I think that I know Patrick's been hard at work on that, and that is like you like you said, that's one of those great stories of uh, kind of these these operations that pop up and and really dominate the scene. And it's always great hearing the backstory behind those. Uh, thank you for that. i look forward to Hot List to Agency of the Year, to Ads of the Year, lots more coming up. Uh, it's going to be a busy November and December. Yes, it our theme, will. <laughs> our theme music is by Home. This week's episode was produced by Christina Monlos and edited by Kevin Eck. Thank you, Christina. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, Please take a moment, if you have not already, to leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Those reviews help us a lot uh, to reach new audiences. So uh, please take a moment, if you have not already, to uh, leave us a review on there. I am David Greiner with Adweek.com. Thank you to each of our panelists, to Tim Nud, Christina Monlos, Michael Berge. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we will talk to you again next week.